I'm Ian Dalimore, and this is Digital and Dirt. We can make an angel fall from the skies. Digital is used for this. That had 355 million people see it. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, my next guest is described as a creative, fantasist, technologist, a crafter, and a storyteller. He is a huge Tottenham Spurs football club fan. And for over the last 16 years, he's served as the chief creative officer of Grand Visual and Talon. We're going to be going a little bit deeper into his career as chief creative officer for Grand Visual. We're going to talk about some of his favorite campaigns, the importance of dynamic advertising in the out-of-home space, and what the impacts of these campaigns have. Welcome, Mr. Dan Dawson. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for having me. You know, it's been a few months since, as you know, I've got my own podcast, but we haven't recorded for the whole summer, pretty much. I've been, we've taken a little bit of a break and we've got a new addition to the family. So that's pretty much taking up all of my time. So it's great to be back recording again, especially with you. Yeah, for sure. And when I first met you, we worked on that Google Play campaign, which we'll go into more detail in a little bit. And it really opened my eyes. And as I met you, I was like, this guy's going to be someone that I'm going to lean on often with, especially being creative right and left brain being a technologist and you guys do such an amazing job of combining the two together and my son jake who is a massive soccer fan and player you're kind of his hero i may have told him that you played for tottingham but you sent over a jersey <laughs> to him and he was like dad dad that guy's amazing. Did, yeah yeah so he thinks you play for him so well, well the good thing is there is a there is a guy called dawson who used to play for spurs and like 10 years ago so you could just pretty much tell, tell him that that's me and he'll get Dawson on the back of his shirt. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Well, good. Well, <laughs> it, it really is great to see you and talk to you here. And more importantly, having our listeners get to dive into your brain a little bit more and, and learn about what you do. But before we get started, I literally could not, like as I was prepping for this podcast, I was like, there is no way that an American, me, Ian, could interview a Brit, you being Dan, and couldn't start off the podcast without talking about Ted Lasso. And for those who don't know who Ted Lasso is, shame on you, but it's an Apple TV Plus series, and it is phenomenal. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? I know a lot uh, you... Oh, uh, it's so yeah. good. I remember when someone first sent me, they, they did a, uh, Jason Sudeikis did a sketch that launched the whole show where he, he became the Tottenham Hotspur manager. And it was so... For NBC, I think it was when NBC got the coverage in the US of the of the Premier League, and Jason Sudeikis came over and and was you know did this whole three minute video of him becoming the new Tottenham Hotspur football manager, and it was it was absolutely brilliant. So that's where the I think that's where the that's the very first time I saw the Ted Lasso name, and I, I loved it ever since then. So when they when they turned it into a TV series, it was a no brainer that I'm watching that because it combines my my two favorite things, and I think well, I'm a big NFL fan, Broncos fan. And I think that, you know, compare, comparing we call football and what you call football and merging those two things together with a coach from NFL coming into soccer is fantastic. And it's, yeah. just, it's hilarity infused. It's, it's very funny. Big fans in this house. Even my wife loves it and she hates sports-related comedies. Yeah. You know, I wasn't sure because oftentimes, especially 
us being from South Louisiana, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, so many people when Waterboy came out with the Adam Sandler, everyone's like, oh, cool. So you ride alligators to work and you can't understand. Unfortunately, LSU's football coach sounds a lot like that. But so I wasn't sure if that was like a mockery of British people, but good. I'm glad you enjoy it. But definitely listeners, I I know we don't work for uh, Apple Plus TV, but we definitely gave the plug here. So go go give it a listen. But uh, Dan, why don't you give our listeners how you got started as a digital designer? So I first started in the industry almost fresh out of art college. I went to a pretty prestigious school in the UK, art school. And it's kind of the early days of screen technology as well. And I was, I was almost obsessed with kind of creating stuff for screens. And back then it was sort of in-store TV stuff. And I, my end of year show from my degree was a it was a play on what should have been hotel TV channels. I created this whole room of a, of a CD American motel. But it was certainly the way that the industry was going. It screens popping up in out-of-home, in the U.S., call it place space, but in out-of-home spaces. And I think I, I was almost becoming obsessed with that as a, as a visual medium. So as a creative, how can we communicate with people when it not being a TV? And I very quickly got some work experience at a company called MEI Design, who had some incredible contracts with people like W.H. Smith, who are a kind of Waterstones-type bookstore in the U.K., for their first in-store retail, and I did some branding work on that, and I fell in love with the industry straight away. I mean, fast forward a few years, and I met up with a guy called Neil Morris, who ended up being my business partner in Grand Visual. And we've now worked together 17 and a half years. And it's, uh, you know, that was the beginning of Grand Visual, really. We were working somewhere else together, and we loved the way that the outcome industry was moving as paper was being replaced with pixel. Um, there was no real experts out there helping the agencies and clients get through the dirt of specs and, oh, it's a TV on its end, or why is it in portrait mode? You know, that kind of stuff was exciting to us. It was a whole new visual medium. And it was not a, just a, you know, set it and forget it poster. It was something that could tell a story over time or over a canvas. And for a creative, that was really exciting for us. So we, we started Grand Visual. And we started it as a specialist business to look at the outcome space and to to help clients and agencies communicate better to people on the move. And what you're touching on is still an issue today. You know, when Mm -hmm. Lamar launched its first digital screen, actually, this is our 20th year this year. That was a problem. All we would see is static creative just move over to digital screens. And one of the things that I've been impressed by Grand Visual over the years, and now with Grand Visual and Talent in the U.S., is that ability to challenge briefs that would come through as just normally like, hey, a screen's a screen's a screen. It doesn't matter. We're just going to move this same creative across. And that that is the complete opposite of approach of what you guys have done at Grand Visual. So maybe give a little bit of the history. I know you touched on it, but dive a little bit deeper on what Grand Visual does on a daily basis. When we first set up the business that we were in before, we built up a portfolio of clients and agencies who were looking to use this space more effectively. And back then, you know, we're talking about 2005, the first escalator panel run was going in in London. Um, So these are screens on the side of the escalator that go up and down on on the subway. And rather than being static, we knew they had the opportunity to be animated. And given our background was motion graphic design and communication and telling stories, we approached lots of clients to change the way that they were looking to use it to launch on this new medium. So most of those early years of Grand Visual was all animation-based. It was all telling stories over 5, 10, 20 seconds. I think we were struggling a bit with 
brands who are looking to use this medium in a smart way, but their agencies weren't fulfilling. So the briefs were landing in the TV department or the briefs were landing in the digital department, but they were kind of bouncing around in agency world. Whereas for us as a production company, we really understand how to communicate. And so most of that work was animation based, you know, as I said, five, 10, 20 second copy and helping brands tell their story over time. Or as people were walking past, well, we coined a phrase very quickly called cue to view. How do we use these screens as a cue to view? And what are we going to deliver at that cue to view? How many cue to views can we get in a 10 second piece of copy? So we were using kind of old animation techniques that were still used on TV ads to try and grab people's attention and give them a piece of information on a, on a mute network as they're doing something else, reading the paper, you know, on their way to work or something. So we just started to, in a linear way, and it's one of the services that we still call linear, yep. is a piece of short form video that they were deploying to the screen. Yeah, and the fact that you took a medium that is still today used as a mass medium, but what you've done uniquely is you've said, hey, even though it's a mass medium, I could still talk to each consumer that's potentially walking past and, and give them a different experience. And you've really evolved it beyond just linear. You dive into dynamic. So maybe touch on a bit of the dynamic and then the next phase is kind of interactive. Yeah, I think we have to remember that we're talking about 05 and this is the very early stages of digital out-of-home networks and screens. There, were, there weren't that many out there, certainly in the UK, and we, we'd started in the UK. There weren't that many screens out there, but the ones that were out there were starting to be a bit more portrait. So, you know, using our techniques, we were able to change shapes and sizes and deliver across all the different shapes and sizes of screens and media owners that were out there. And we got really good at our media owner integration. So talking to media owners about what screens were coming, what the specs were, how they would accept delivery. And that really helped us progress from linear into dynamic because we had a great understanding of the technology that was in the ground, whether they're using scheduling systems or something homebrewed. Because we understood all those specs, we started to explore ways of transferring some of the technology that was sitting in the digital online space into the out-of-home space. So we were the first company to do a dynamic campaign in the UK. That was 2009. That was for Nokia, that brand who don't particularly advertise that much anymore. And the next one after that was for Nike. So it was a kind of responsive stuff to sports the sports world and what's happening in, in the soccer world cup and we started to develop a platform that enabled us to take data feeds in and push content out we absolutely coined the phrase dynamic digital out of home that was kind of where we saw it going and i think that confused some people because dynamism was kind of seen as as animation but we saw dynamism as taking data sources or real world information or being responsive to what's happening in the real world and tuning our campaign to what a consumer might be feeling, doing, where they're going, or what they're seeing. Um, so we started to really focus our attention in the dynamic space from about 2009, 2010. And as a publisher vendor at Lamar, and I know a handful of my friends across other media in the US, also what you've done is you've really made it easier for the agency side and the brand side to pull off these campaigns. Because one of the things that you had to deal with if you were the agency doing the buy with dynamic content, whether it's weather triggered, streaming live tweets, et cetera, is you had to go to each vendor publisher and say, okay, what does your interface look like? What does yeah. your player side look like? So the other th big hurdle that you guys helped in the industry is say, hey, dynamic content, although it could look hard, we're the pros at it. And we can get together, clear Lamar, JC to co out front 
workplace-based screens and pull them all together in one cohesive campaign. I know from my perspective, that was a game changer. Even though Lamar was very far and has always been very far advanced on the dynamic side, I always look at it as scale and mass. And what your company has done is allowed any and everyone to do a dynamic campaign regardless of the screen. And the yeah, company. and I think we saw some really good successes. I think that's for two reasons, actually. I think we branded up our opportunity as, as a system called Open Loop. Um, one of my favorite days in, in my career has been when someone quoted back to me that they wanted to do an Open Loop campaign because we created that name. It was a brand name that we created that explained you know, we wanted people to open the loop to do dynamic content. And so having people in agency land come back and say, oh, I, I, we really want to do an open loop campaign. Do you think you might be able to help us with that? I was like, okay, we've, we've achieved our dream. We've created a product that the market can see. And we, we ran those integrations with all of the media owners, you know, the Lamars and the Outfronts and the Joseph Decos of the world. You know, we were talking to the people on the scheduling side and we were getting set up so that we can do this in a much smoother way moving forward. And I think that was a, was a key thing. And I think the other thing that I think that really set us up to deliver across multiple media owners, because that's, that's really where you get scalability from and out. While all of the national media owners have got coverage across the nation, being able to do things across multiple media owners is where the true value is for our home audiences, I think. You know, that gives you real scale, real reach. And I think what we did very early on is align ourselves to the out-of-home specialists of the world, because they were the guys planning this across multiple media owners. They had relationships with the media owners, and they were able to control how the market moves so for us, aligning our service with a specialist market was a, a bit of a masterstroke on Neil's behalf, really, because it was setting us up to say, right, okay, a specialist is buying this, so they will be able to sell you this specialist production service as well. And those are two reasons that I think Dynamic really took off for us in the UK and then eventually in the US as well. So lastly, interactive. And that's, to me, interactive has become something that so often it's like, well, only interactive can happen if it's a screen that you can walk up and touch and interact with. Maybe walk through the interactive, the next step beyond dynamic. It's interesting. I remember the very first interactive campaign that we ran. And like you say, it was kind of, oh, can we do a touch screen? You know, and it's kind of really basic things. And it wasn't until we did something for Ford motor car that it really moved away from a basic touchscreen idea. I mean, I was doing touchscreen stuff at MEI design back in the early days of my career. It was point of sale stuff. You know, here's the latest sneaker, customize your laces and all that kind of stuff. It's relatively basic. But when we started to see all the new technologies coming in, the infrared camera from Panasonic was a game changer for us. They had a copy line on their campaign, um, the, the powers in your hands or something that was for the C-Max car. And we used the Panasonic de-imager to make a non-touchscreen interactive thing where people could juggle that they could customize the cat the car using gesture on the screen and this was maybe 2010 as well actually and i think that as we started to see people looking at the out of home space in a different way and wanting to have different conversations with consumers we started to see much more interactive briefs and interactive brief responses going back to clients it was in 2011 that I think another kind of stake in the ground goes in in the name of Grand Visual that kind of shaped the business, actually still shaping the business now. You know, we were doing linear stuff, we're doing dynamic things. In 2011, we started working with Lynx, who are Axe, uh, Body Spray. And we ran a campaign called Lynx Angel Ambush. They had a TV campaign where if young guys sprayed their underarms with this Lynx spray, it's so good that angels would fall from the sky. <laughs> That was their, their TV creative. 
And we looked at that with the specialist kinetic and the media agency Mindshare and the creative agency BBH and said, hey, we could bring that to life using augmented reality. And no word of a lie, every single person in that room said augmented what? Oh, wow. What? What's augmented reality? And we kind of explained it and said, this is completely possible. Showed them some inspiration stuff. And I said, you know, we can help you shoot these angels in a green screen studio and we could bring that action to life on screen. So if someone looked up at the big screen in a train station um, and they were stood in the right spot, we could make an angel fall from the skies. And everyone in that room was mouth open said, that that will never happen. And we made it happen. You know, that's one of the things I love about our industry is that we can have those conversations in random meetings and we can make this stuff happen. Yeah. So back to your, your title of being a storyteller, that's what is unique. Anyone can take tech, not anyone, but anyone can take creative and technology and have something come to life. But what I loved about that story, and that's actually one of my favorite campaigns that you guys have done, is the fact that you said, hey, on this media TV, they're doing this as that consumer journeys throughout their day i.e. out of home and the exposure, we can make this kind of come to life. So it's beyond just like a one-off, hey, this is super cool. We made something happen in Times Square. But truly what you're doing is you're talking about the consumer's journey and how the media can play a role throughout that person's day. And then the recall begins to happen. Well, I think that's one of the joys of interactivity. And I think we're able to create campaigns that can generate their own reach. And I think that's that's phenomenal for Out of Home. Out of Home becomes the initial canvas at that point. With the Angel Ambush campaign, the, the initial part of the Out of Home reach is the people in the station that saw it that weekend. And that's a few thousand people. That's not tens and maybe not even hundreds of thousands of people. It was a Friday and Saturday and Sunday in a London train station. The true value and the true reach for that campaign came with a remote film crew, hidden film crew, retelling the story of what happened on this Out of Home format to a now socialized audience this one was only posted on youtube facebook video didn't exist instagram did not exist this was posted out on youtube and people were sharing it socially it got coverage in the news and got great pr and all of a sudden this humble out of home campaign had you know a 10 million plus audience that's why i think it was one of those those kind of stake in the ground moments for out of home campaigns and we, i mean we've worked on stuff since that that campaign led to other campaigns in the in the u.s like our disney shadows campaign that had 355 million people see it yeah, so let's, in 2015. Let's talk about that. You've Just to kind of brag about you and the company a bit, you've made Mickey Mouse appear in Times Square via augmented reality. You've haunted people in Hong Kong during Halloween, and you had aliens descend on London. I know this is tough, you having two kids now. It's like asking which one's your favorite kid, and my response is always <laughs> like, depends on the day. But maybe give us your top three favorite campaigns. Uh, in reverse order, in classic billboard order. Yeah. Okay. Number three, I would absolutely go with our Pepsi Max campaign that we did with AMV here in London. It, again, it wouldn't have been possible without the ones that had gone before it. And so the Link Angel Ambush. But I think the Pepsi Max one was a real game changer because it started to move to the small format. It got lots of PR coverage. We had the BBC News come to the office and understand, want to understand a bit more about augmented reality and advertising. And it still makes the phone ring now, you know, so we still get the phone call from far-flung places around the world and they want to do a Pepsi Max bus stop. Yeah, and we'll we'll drop the videos in the show link, but 
for our listeners, these are bus shelters. And while you're standing behind the shelter, you would see an alien ship kind of come through, shoot lasers. Correct me if I'm wrong. You had a tiger or something diving at the screen, all sorts of stuff. I've seen so many decks. I think that's the accolade as well. You know, it won a can lion, very, very happy clients, very happy agency, you know, forged great relationships for us with all around the world, actually. So yeah, I think Pepsi Max would be in there at number three. Um, Number two, I think it would have to be a dynamic campaign. In fact, we did it in the US. It went into New York. It was Google's, I think, second or third dynamic campaign with us in the US. It just launched the Explore function inside Google Maps. But I think one of the reasons my favorite is it uses a lot of data points. So there is consolidated data across from their first-party data inside their maps, what people are searching for, what's trending in different boroughs of New York, and down to different streets whether it's coffee or cronuts or cookies, depending on where you are and what time of day it is. It looked at the weather, it looked at um, the weather forecast. It looked at the foot traffic of what was happening in certain stores at certain times. When things were quiet, it would promote them. And all of that is a function of what happens in Google Maps anyway. And we used all of that data and cross-referenced it against out-of-home data or the locations on the plan. Went out mostly on the intersection screens actually around New York. And then it prioritized things based on what was happening in real time. So a really simple message. Just by reading the headline, you may not have even realized it was dynamic, which is the subtlety and the smartness of the campaign. Right. But it, when you opened your Google Maps Explore and when you're you know, on your way to a meeting or on feet around the city, Maps Explore would pop up with the same things as you were seeing on the outcome campaign. So there was this transition between your mobile and the app that you already have downloaded and what you're seeing as part of an advertising campaign. And I think for me, the data scraping and the understanding of the industry and how that worked in the US was a great moment in time for me personally. We were the Beatles. We were having trouble cracking America, that's for sure. And that was a big moment for us. It was the difficult album that managed to crack America. And we we all of a sudden had some fans over there. You've cracked Google too, because you've done some tremendous, I know we did the Google Play campaign, which was the trending songs based on weather conditions, marketplace, time of day. And, and even one of my favorite ones that I just kind of fell upon, I think you may have shared it with me, was the Google Summer campaign. So what yeah. things to do in the summertime. And, and again, what you've done is, yes, you've opened up the minds of out-of-home specialists and creative agencies to think of out-of-home differently. But on top of it, to crack someone like Google, and now every campaign that they do, they're including you guys and they're using much more finite and you know, one-to-one conversations or one-to-that-time-of-day and audience. And it's it's fascinating because when we deployed digital 20 years ago, that was the thought, is if you're not doing dynamic mm. content by the static board 500 feet before or after, digital is used for this. And, you know, that that's what you've done with Google and, and a ton of your clients. And I think that goes back to the masterstroke of aligning ourselves to the specialists. You know, in that case, in the Google case, OMG team, they were phenomenal. You know, we flew to San Francisco to sit with the Google client to talk them through exactly what we were doing. And I think it was, you know, they they were open to that because they really wanted to try and um, match the level of competency that we were seeing in Europe already with Google. And, you know, they were doing this stuff already. So they should absolutely be doing this in the world's most advanced out-of-home market in the U.S. Why not? And so we, you know, we sat with them and we, and we walked them through it. Yeah. So number one, this should be good because I'm I'm actually intrigued. I have my number one that you guys have done, so I'll let you go first. It is the Disney Shadows campaign that I referenced earlier on, and it's yeah. Disney has always been you know my baby. As a chief creative officer, you have these clients who 
who you realize you can push boundaries with and you know to have a a business who are so well known for their storytelling come to you and say hey can you help us tell some stories is a big feather in the cap for me personally and professionally mm -hmm. so i've got a great working relationship with the team over there the head of um innovation over there was a guy called duncan wardle a fellow brit and he's a he's a very good friend of mine um although he supports a terrible football team um <laughs> He won't, he won't mind me saying that. What football team is that for, for our listeners? He, support, he supports Chelsea, yeah. yeah He's exactly. a, which are one of Tottenham's biggest rivals. Yeah, he, he phoned and said, that, you know, we, we've got this campaign. We want to find what people's inner Disney side is. Um, we went back with a concept that, you know, if you have an inner Disney side, it could manifest itself as a Disney shadow. So we, um, we took over a void store in a, in a nondescript mall in Massapequa, Long Island. Because we wanted to use that as a canvas. And I talked about earlier, you know, if out of home can become a canvas. It's not for the 4,000 people that saw it. It was for the, for the millions of people that could potentially see this thing online. And as part of the sale to the client, I actually wrote, personally wrote the social film. And I said, this is, this is where your true value is. Mm -hmm. And there was as much investment in that social film as there was on the out of home stunt. So, you know, they, they really put their, their money where the mouth was. Um, and I even got to star in the film as well because we ran out of budget for the, oh, uh, for the right. extras. So. That's right. <laughs> so anyone who knows what I look like, you get five extra points if you get to see me in the, in the film. I love it. it. And again, we'll put all these campaigns in the uh, show notes. The, that's, uh, that's just the pure vanity of a, of a chief creative officer there. He, you know, he likes that one because he was in it. Yeah. No, I love it. <laughs> no, well, so my favorite is, and it's a more recent one, I believe, uh, O2 with a little yeah. robot that would follow you around that that one was fascinating Bubble, yeah. yeah so maybe talk about that and we'll we'll transition on that was a cool one and i actually um one of the things i love sorry just going back to the Please. disney thing because it does relate to, to bubble and and something that you said earlier on as well about creative and technology for me a successful campaign the technology is hidden right it should be it should have the lowest bar to entry so anyone can use it as out of home we could we could be talking to anyone um but the technology shouldn't be the main part. It shouldn't be the star of the show. The story is the star of the show. The technology is a tool that helps us get there and helps us get that story told in the right way. One of the things I love about the Disney one is that, that the technology behind it is effectively a weather studio. It's effectively, you know, we've got some talent who are able to see what's happening in a different place and they're able to respond accordingly. Mm -hmm. It wasn't as smart 3D models of, of characters we could have pitched. It was really simple technology deployed for the right reason. And the bubble campaign for O2 that you're talking about is exactly the same thing. You know, we could have had motion sensors running up all around that screen, but we didn't. You know what? We had a guy sitting opposite with a PlayStation controller, and he was able to control where bubble went based on who was standing in front of it. Yeah. Now, that served two purposes. It meant that the client didn't pay for unnecessary technology. And we didn't have a whole load of fail safes that were needed for technology when it goes wrong, because it does go wrong. Technology sure. goes wrong all the time. Yeah. But the, it served its purpose for that campaign, and exactly that's exactly why we suggest technology. It's there for the creative sake, not for the technology's sake itself. Yeah, and that look, we've everyone that's been in advertising and creative, even on the schooling side, delight and surprise, and that's what I loved about it. Yeah. And if you watch the video, it's so great because there's this really cool robot that kind of follows you around. And again, we're bombarded with ads throughout our lives. I think the number is now up to like 7,000 ads per day. As a consumer, you're bombarded with whether you realize it or not. 
And in your video, and I'm sure throughout the whole campaign, you would see people walking past and then they would go, oh, wait, that thing's following me. And then they would start to have fun with it. They would start dancing and doing all these great things. And the robot mimicked it. And again, delight and surprise. That's when you do technology and creative correctly, delight and surprise is the end of the day. That's your goal. Not look here, touch here, do this. It's purely a natural process. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference that, you know, what, what we're trying to do in an interactive campaign is start and continue a conversation. You know, I think one of the things that we talk about for linear campaigns is they are, a, I talked about this on one of um, my podcasts, but it's a visual shout. It's something that says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm flashing, I'm flashing, you should buy me. You know, we, we've all seen the, uh, you know, is, that's not where I think we should get to. We should be getting conversations with consumers and we should be, we should be cognizant that we're in a pu- very public space. Yep. And we want to have a conversation with consumers so that they have that product recall, brand recall, whatever you like. For me, it's I remember that conversation I had mm. with the brand, and I was I was I can't remember in time. And that, that's a really significant thing for anyone creative working in our industry. Is you were part of the conversation, and that's what we were trying to do. Yeah. So transitioning over to the the challenging side, right? A recent research study showed that digital combining the effectiveness of both brands and memorabilia measured the increase of the overall ad effectiveness in this specific study. They had 20 campaigns that they studied. They were all dynamic, interactive, and it was an incredible 48% effectiveness of ad recall. And like you were talking about the ability to interact. Why, why is this not happening more? And the percentage is so low in the U S it really is, yeah. I mean, it's below 5% for dynamism, which is incredible. I mean, in the UK, it's still it's hovering between 8 and 10%. It's not, it's not as many as we would like, that's for sure. Otherwise, we would see much more of it, and we'd, and we'd probably talk less about it because it would become sure. part of the everyday, and that's for sure. You know, I think that the reasons for doing it are very well published. You know, I want to have a conversation with, with someone who's willing to have a conversation, and I want to be relevant to that moment in time. So it's an obvious thing to do. Unfortunately, I think in the world that we live in, with the number of stakeholders in projects, from clients through their 12 different agencies that they work with, all the way down to media owners and to the production companies, is we're going to evangelize and we can tell people, but if they're not willing to change the way that they work, it's never going to happen. And these things will always fall into one of two buckets. It will fall into, hey, that sounds expensive, I'm not doing it, or I don't have enough time now because I've been sitting on my hands for the last few weeks. And or sometimes it's it's really simple is that they plan really late so they can't do anything really smart so mm-hmm. let's just throw, throw over the ads that we're producing for other formats sure. and it just gets reformatted and pushed out yeah. and, you know, that's a real shame because we all know that out of home media comes at a premium if people treat it as the premium media that it is because of the genuine eyeballs that it gets then we will see much better advertising on our screens and on our formats for sure. Yeah, agreed. So you talk about time, and I think probably one of the successes that you had with the Disney campaigns is the relationship. So starting directly with a brand or directly in the early on briefs of the creative side, like you did probably with Axe, where you knew what the TV side was. How do we make sure that these conversations, I know it's an education on capabilities. You and I have sat on committees where we've talked about this, like, hey, this is everything that the world of digital can do pitch this from day one. So maybe maybe discuss some of the the advantages that you've had going direct and, and having that creative conversation. You know, I, I think the client brand marketing teams get it straight away. They sure. really want to do this stuff. And they do reach out to us directly, which is great. And you know, our 
you know, if I, if I go to our sales team and say, what's our conversion rate? It's much higher sure. with clients direct than it is with agencies. And that's because there's often other conversations at play there. I think the main piece of education that we've been working on has been through the creative agencies, actually, because often a creative team will be sat in a room, you know, they've got a brief in front of them that's omni-channel, so they're looking at social, they're looking at TV, they're looking at out of home, and, you know, they just need to have points of reference in their in their arsenal. Say, oh, do you know what? I could do something interactive on out of home. I could do something dynamic, with dynamic content. Um so we've been doing lots of education programs with the creative agency world. And in fact, one of the whole reasons for my podcast is because we want to educate people of the joy of doing something really special in the outbound space. Yeah. And I've known you through the industry for, for a while. And I've, like I'd mentioned, I admired your work that you've done thus far. And I know you have so much more ahead. Do you almost feel pressure, you being who you are, to just make a, a unique ad and just kind of, you want it <laughs> Sometimes, so badly? I, we, you know, we, we get the same question at the end of every year because of obviously a marketing team or an agency is saying, what should we be doing next year, right? Sure. So I always get, I get asked, you know, what's the next big thing? What should we be doing? What technology should we use next year? And I hate that. Yeah. But it's for the same reason, you know, that balance between tech and creative is all about what we talk about. So I tend to skirt that subject and right. I just say these are the things you should be thinking about and um, I think it's difficult in our industry because everyone wants to have the next Link's Angel Ambush, the next Pepsi Max, the next Disney Shadows but that's not what I want. I want to see better briefs. I want to see a brief where you know you mentioned it you know with Disney we were we were walking around that shopping mall six months before we actually put a shadow on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, with Lynx, I saw the first cut of the TV ad six months before it was released on TV. And it gives us that time and that energy to pitch something really good and to make really good use of the premium canvas that the, the client is buying. So, you know, if, if there's one piece of advice I could give to brands and agencies is, you know, don't, don't leave things to the last minute because the better work comes when we plan and, and we respect the creative process from start to finish. Yeah. And don't, don't be afraid, right? Even if you're yeah. a sales rep, I've always taught this to our team, you know, don't do technology just for technology's sake. I, I remember yeah. years ago, whenever there was this fantastic campaign that involved QR codes where you would interact with bus shelter static and you could download audiobooks and and video. And then the next year when we came to that client, they were like, all right, so what's the next big thing? Like you had talked about, it's like, no, 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 it's not the next big thing. It's how do we elaborate on this? How do we do more of this? So I think what you guys have done at at Grand Visual and Grand Visual Talent in the US has just been fascinating. And I I would love to kind of end on what excites you now in the next five years where Out of Home could and should be headed. Uh, I think... I think part of that answer is our acquisition. So we were acquired by Grand Visual was independent um, up until 2019, and we were acquired by the Talon Group. And I think that you know, from a from a specialist perspective, they were one of the only UK specialists that didn't have a kind of dynamic content partner in the building. But actually, for Talon, it was much bigger than that, and it's part of a broader offering now. So to clients and agencies that we work with is, is not just planning and buying, it's not just creativity, it's not just ad it's the full package. So we are able to sit down around the table and show that we've got strength in all of the core areas for outside planning and delivery. So for me, you know, seeing some of the results that are now coming out of the US, um, you know, working with Havas, the Havas team very closely mm-hmm. and having much closer alignment with the media team and, the, and our creative sales team. So we're starting to see much more cohesive working around 
how to deliver this stuff and for what reason to deliver it to clients. That's exciting because you're starting to see a team who get digital as a core part of the outflow offering. It's not a bolt-on anymore. And for years, I was talking about it really, you know, getting bored of saying it, but digital was always the bolt-on to the outflow campaign. And now it's almost the other way around. The traditional is the bolt-on and digital is, is the, the kind of hero piece. And I think that's really exciting. The technology is going to do what the technology does, sure. right? Every two years, it will get twice as quick and twice as good. Um, our job is to make sure we have the right conversations with consumers using the technology that we've got. Yeah. Look, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I know you and I can go on and on because we share such commonality and passion about this space and tech and creativity, but I couldn't let you go without actually plugging your podcast and thank you for putting me on it behind the billboard. It, it's really good. And you're the co-host of it. Maybe leave, leave our listeners with a little bit and we'll definitely put the link to the podcast in our show notes here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, a good industry friend of mine. I shouldn't call him an industry friend, but I should just call him a friend. But we did meet through a, a project. So a guy called Hugh Todd. He's a creative director. He's now at the BBC at BBC Creative. Um, I mean, we'd meet up every month and have a coffee and talk about the state of the industry. He's one of those creatives that just loves out of home. So we work on projects and we meet up what's happening. You know, I've seen any good billboards lately. And, and he had the idea of we should, we should write a book. We should write a coffee table book about the great outdoors and we should you know, get it in every agency and put it on every coffee table we can find. So we went down that route and we were kind of, we were, we were talking about it and talking about it. We just kept talking. And I just said one day, Hey, maybe we should just record our chats so that we don't miss anything. And then the, we were kind of talking about it, where we should just stop this idea of a book and make a podcast and start talking about um, our, our favorite ad campaigns of all time that have run on billboards. Um, and it kind of, the idea manifested from there. So we're two seasons in. We talk about the the great and good of creativity in the out of home space, not just billboards, posters, and and events and stuff that have happened. And we've had you know some incredibly creative people on the on the podcast, from cigarette advertising when it was allowed, all the way up until the kind of the more. And we've also you know we talked to planners, we talked to the, the photographers and the model makers, and lots of really interesting people who have got story to tell around a core billboard idea. Um, we had the guys that did the McDonald's sundial in the US, which was great. I think me and him, it's like we're in the pub having a conversation, like, very much like this, yeah. having a conversation about what true creativity looks like in our space um, and trying to dig underneath the fact that it was just delivered as a piece of printed material on a billboard. And you know, What were some of the stories and the client stories behind that? How do we help people get the best out of this medium moving forward? Yeah, I love it. And again, it's behind the billboard and can be found on any uh, podcast yep, platform. You can, you can check out the website. It's getbehindthebillboard.com or you can search it on Apple, Spotify, Google, Behind the Billboard. Um, you'll see our, our lovely designed logo from our, our designer, Jordan. It's exactly what we do in our spare time. So we may as well just share those musings with everyone. Well, good. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I Hopefully next time we can actually do this in person in a pub and have a great conversation. Yeah. And look, keep preaching the gospel of creativity, innovation, and technology. You guys do such an amazing job. So don't ever quit. Don't thank ever give you. up. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm an illustrious alumni on your podcast. I've seen all of the names. I've heard all of your episodes and I'm a big, big fan already. So keep doing what you guys are doing at Lamar. I think it's a great company. You know, always fun to work with when we're on projects. And I think it's, it's great to have outcome media owners who who see the world in the way that we see it. And that's kind of everything's possible that can do attitude with a capital D-O-O-H. Love it. 
Thank you, my friend. Great seeing you. Great chatting with you. You too. Take care. Digital and Dirt is brought to you by Lamar Advertising. To learn more, check out the links in the description or go to lamar.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple, or other platforms where podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.